Let's do it. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 24 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on March 22nd, 2020. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost, and on this episode, we are joined by GamesIndustry.biz staff writer Rebecca Valentine to discuss the evolving role of a journalist in the gaming industry, we have early impressions of Doom Eternal, and offer a brief comparison between the newly revealed specs for the PlayStation 5 as they compare to the Xbox Series X. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XCP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I welcome you to this episode of XCP, I can't help but feel I welcome you to what will likely be your new normal for the next few months as we all adapt and shift our daily lives rather quickly, I might add, to what it means to be living in a world of COVID-19 and the coronavirus and that has to be stressful for a lot of you, and I would imagine if you're like me, you are turning to gaming for a bit of sanctum, for a bit of relaxation, and for quite a bit of an escape. And that can be a daunting task and an easy task for some of us, but I would urge you to keep things in perspective, welcome this new normal with as open arms as possible, and remember the advice that I have given and gotten many times in my life, and that all things are a phase. The good and the bad. All things are a phase. And so do your best to adapt as much as you can. Keep an open mind to new things. And do your best to keep a positive attitude because it must be difficult. And more difficult for some than it might be for others. But it must be difficult to adjust on, on a dime and change. And we are all going through it. And know that wherever you are, whomever you are, you are by no means alone in this trying to figure it out. And it is absolutely okay if you're struggling right now. You don't need to understand quite how to homeschool from home, how to work from home. You don't need to be great at it, perfect at it. Do your best. Balance in all things. Balance in the types of foods you're eating, the amount of exercise, what types of games you're playing, where you're playing, how much TV you're watching, how many books you're reading. Balance all those things and give yourself a break. There's absolutely no, re no reason why you should have to get it right. And here... On XCP and in our Gamerverse, we do our best to be like we always have, there for each other. We do our best to enjoy games, celebrate games, uh, and celebrate what it can do to provide us that bit of sanctum, that bit of escape from reality. Allow yourself to be alright. Allow yourself to recognize that it's okay to not be alright in this time, because whatever our new normal is going to be, we're certainly not there just yet, and this bit of turmoil will pass like all things. On now to more exciting, seemingly, news, and that PlayStation 5's technical specifications were revealed by Sony in this past week in a live stream in which PlayStation 4 and 5 architect Mark Cerny offered insight into what it was the PlayStation 5 would be bringing. This was an informative and uh, a dryly uneventful presentation that took place on a live stream that was meant to be a replacement to the GDC conferences, and, and as such, the intended audience was meant to be developers. Now, this did feel a bit at odds when PlayStation tweeted out that they would be having a PlayStation 5 uh, event of sorts in which you could have information on the next level of gaming and how PlayStation 5 would change gaming going forward. And so many fans and media outlets flocked to the show to check out what was a strange presentation in which seemingly Mark Cerny was talking to an empty room with digitally overlaid people 
uh, and providing these specifications and detailing to, to consumers and to developers just how the PlayStation 5 would operate and how it would make use of a seemingly less powerful set of hardware than the Xbox Series X, but rather more efficient hardware. And whether or not that's true remains to be seen and frankly does not matter much at all when it comes to the experience on the end user side. And I will argue from the very get-go from now until the end of time that it does not matter which system is more powerful, Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo, or any other first-party platform. It matters what experiences you're able to have on it and how that serves your personal interest. At this moment in time, it seems that the PlayStation 5 has an extremely efficient design that many developers are excited to check out, whereas Xbox has a more powerful system in terms of raw numbers, and again, it remains to be seen what developers are able to do with it. It looks to me that both the Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 will be making great use of more advanced audio than they are in this current generation by way of two different methods. It looks like PlayStation 5 system will operate without taxing its GPU uh, for audio purposes, whereas the, the Xbox Series X has a dedicated chip to handle a number of those processing bits. Frankly, I don't speak that language, and again, don't try to. I look again to games and services. Backward compatibility was a center point for the comparisons that Cerny made, and he was accidentally nebulous on, as to whether or not the PlayStation 5 would offer backward compatibility with PlayStation 4 games, and Sony later clarified that yes, the system will work with PlayStation 4 games, with over 4,000 of those titles working off the get-go. What Mark Cerny was referring to, rather, was a boost compatibility where the PlayStation 5 would, would take in PS4 games and boost them and make them uh, of a higher quality, not unlike the way the Xbox One X enhances a number of the Xbox One and Xbox 360 titles. So take that for what you will. Uh, it is unlikely, though, in terms of backward compatibility, that the PlayStation 5 will play PS3 games, largely due to the PS3's strange hardware design in that cell processor system. It doesn't do well or bode well, rather, for future-proofing from the time. And so I would imagine that Sony gamers or anyone that picks up a PS5 will have access to PlayStation 3 games more likely by a cloud-based technology through PS Now or whatever its successor is. Uh, not, again, dissimilar to the way that a lot, of, a lot of Xbox gamers experience that via Project xCloud. Xbox, of course, for their part, in response to a number of the questions that came up from this, and not seem, seemingly not, a, not in a... A, a digital war of sorts, but in answering questions from consumers, acknowledge that right now any game that plays on the Xbox One will play on the Xbox Series X, and that includes your backward compatible titles from the original Xbox and the Xbox 360 all the way up to whatever is available come Series X launch. I would also uh, wonder and question whether or not we see more games added from the original Xbox and the Xbox 360 by way of, of continued emulation the way they've done it this generation and that back compat team that went dark not, not uh, too long ago to, to prepare for Xbox Series X. I wonder if we'll see more titles kind of um, given to us in a swath of game titles or a plethora of titles made available all at once, or whether or not they'll be rolled out gradually. I also wonder, again, will they be available via xCloud, or can I purchase and download them onto my hard drive? And those are a number of things that, that I have to wonder uh, whether or not they're being affected by current world status in terms of digital distribution, cloud server speeds, and, and production bases. Uh, uh, just a lot of questions going on. But all in all, what PlayStation 5 did in revealing their event, I think was hurt a lot of their social standing in that they did not seem to impress with this event. It was dry, it was boring, and uninformative. 
to the consumer side. However, on the technical side, I would imagine those with a vested interest were quite pleased with what it was they saw, and there is no doubt that Cerny is a genius. I, for one, am very interested to see whether or not it becomes a raw power game later on versus an efficient design thing, and make no mistake to any listener right here, make no mistake that both of these systems are incredible on paper right now. There is no doubt that we are going to be having far more impressive experiences visually and in an auditory sense uh, when these systems launch. Backward compatibility remains strongly in Microsoft's favor based on the messaging at the moment, and messaging is the key. Right now, a lot of the mindshare is in Microsoft's favor. From the Game Awards reveal, from a lot of the initiatives of Game Pass, Back and Pat, Project xCloud, they seem to have seemingly trounced Google Stadia uh, and, and put down a lot of Sony's early marketing for PlayStation 5. But all that will be negated the moment Sony shows its box and the game will be reevaluated yet again, as we would want it to be. We would want these companies to be going back and forth because as consumers, we all tend to benefit from it. And as consumers, it seems that we'll be having a lot more time at home uh, given quarantines and lockdowns. And I'm very curious to see how it is that Sony and Microsoft uh, make use of this on a business side and on a consumer-friendly side. Will will they take advantage? Will any company try to take advantage in a in a way that feels hostile or negative? I, I don't think so, given the the very viral methods in which gamers can proliferate information and hostility and how quickly it can turn on different companies. Uh, I think we've seen that in both good and bad methods going forward. And so here's hoping that whatever they do, they continue to keep PSN and Xbox Live running and running well. I know we've had some issues on the Xbox Live since uh, in the past week or so with various strained systems. And you would have to think that Microsoft needs to work to negate as many of these as possible, not simply from a consumer standpoint, because I want my Xbox Live to work, but because the much-touted Azure servers are, are not meant to buckle under strain. I have to wonder also if it's those servers or ISPs that are suffering in any different way, shape, or form. And it'll be interesting to look back in retrospective down the line from that. In mentioning consumer-friendly initiatives, a couple things for Xbox gamers seem to be on the up and up right now. Right now, Xbox Game Pass Ultimate members are now open to a number of what Xbox is calling perks, in that if you are an Xbox Game Pass Ultimate member, you now have a tab in the Game Pass section on your console that'll offer you in-game rewards for any number of titles that are available on Xbox, just as a thank you or a perk, rather, for being an Xbox Game Pass Ultimate member. The first perk that piqued my personal interest was that Sea of Thieves is offering Ori and the Will of the Wisps hulls and sails so that you can decorate your ship with an affinity for Ori. And I really, really like that. I love that cross-promotion. I know Fantasy Star Online has some information there, uh, some perks there available to it, as do uh, there are five different gods from the game Smite, if you're interested in that. And I think it's a smart move by Microsoft to say, hey, thank you for being an ultimate member. We appreciate that you're gold. Or we appreciate that you have Game Pass. But if you're an ultimate member, we thank you for doing that. Here's a little bit extra. You still get access to all the standard stuff. But thank you again for just a little bit more. It's a smart move to try and convert people to ultimate going forward and going into next generation. Again, it depends on what game perks are available, whether or not they speak to you. I know a ton of people are really loving Fantasy Star Online 2's beta. Uh, not really my game language of choice, but super cool to see. I'm digging the, the stuff in Sea of Thieves, and I hope to see more stuff like that uh, roll on out. But yeah, check it out. It's in your Game Pass tab on your console, and hopefully by now uh, it's working in the mobile sense. It just wasn't for me at the time of this recording. Uh, but so it goes there. 
when I do talk about this time of recording, it has been uh, roughly a week of isolation and away from work, and I've been filling my time with a number of, of different games. I've been enjoying clearing out the backlog, something that I would hope uh, more of you are able to do. Ori in the Will of the Wisps was a brilliant adventure that I've completed and I really, really did enjoy, and I'm having a great time in this more quiet sense in that we'll be at home, and I would argue this is a great time to check out some of those games that you were interested in but maybe didn't pull the trigger on earlier. So I've been playing Ghost Warrior Contracts. I really got back into State of Decay 2 with its Juggernaut Edition. It is really impressive what they have done with that game. Uh, a, num a number of the jank has been removed. The visuals do indeed look incredible. I think I'm at 70 plus hours with 20 hours or so uh, in the last two weeks that I've, I've really dove in, dived, dived, dove in, divvied, jumped into for sure. Uh, and a lot of different campaigns are now available. There's a number of story options in that game that were not there before, and they'd been added over time. But the Juggernaut Edition allowed me to jump in in a way that, that felt like I was playing an all-new game. Effectively, what Microsoft has done with State of Decay 2 is provide a remaster without calling it that. And I wonder if this isn't going to be a trend we see them, them taking with a lot of their live service games. Sea of Thieves got its anniversary update. Now it's been two years since the game is out, which is even cooler. I, I mean, I, I love Sea of Thieves now. I did not like it at launch. State of Decay 2 is not a live service game, but its community is really vibrant and really healthy. Uh, in taking down the final boss of a very difficult campaign called Heartland, uh, I called out for help, and a number of people speaking multiple languages, uh, Spanish and French alike, were, were jumped into my game and helped me take down this final boss, as did my friend Kevin. Uh, and it was really cool to see. There's there's so much that's happened in State of Decay 2 that uh, if you had a vested interest in the gameplay loop or you kind of liked it but you weren't sure, uh, maybe revisit that because there's a lot more added to it. I got an achievement in that game for wearing a vest and a hat like Marty McFly and driving a sports car 88 miles an hour. That was really cool to see. Uh, there's there's just a lot more to that game than there once was. And so, you know, if State of Decay is up your alley, do, do check it out for sure. I also jumped into Doom Eternal. Now, Bethesda sent the code uh, just before the time of release, and so I've not put enough time into it to call it a review of, of any kind. I've only put a few hours in uh, to the game, but I can tell you my very early impressions of Doom Eternal are ecstatically impressive, and, and I'm so excited for this game to be arriving at, uh, at a time like this where people just need to to escape into new worlds and something to be excited about to have arrived. Seemingly Animal Crossing did the same thing, uh, as you'll hear with our guest Rebecca Valentine, which I'm so excited for you to have. But Doom Eternal, it's fast and it's gloriously violent in a number of ways. The game is absolutely harder than Doom 2016, a game I nearly platinumed and, and thought about 1King over on Xbox as well. Um, but what a wonderful game that Doom 2016 was. Doom Eternal improves upon it in so many ways. And I'm impressed by the visuals, by the new gameplay options. That game speaks a, a movement language by way of attacking your enemies constantly in order to keep your health and armor buffed. You are constantly on offense and utilizing a type of mobility that allows you to be jumping and sprinting and moving about and dashing uh, in a way that your, your hands will begin to learn to speak the language of the game very quickly. And as the game talks to you, it's very much like jazz in the way that it plays. Um, you learn it and you adapt to it. You can't go through in a very linear sense, okay, I'm going to kill this enemy and then move behind this pillar. That's not how the current Dooms operate, and Eternal is no exception. I will say also in my early hours with Doom Eternal, it is noticeably harder 
than the Doom 2016 game. The Doom 2016 game allowed you to take a breath here and there. Eternal, thus far for me, does not. But there's a lot to offer in it, and I will tell you very sincerely that over the next week or two, I'm going to be really going into that game... Uh, uh, head first because I'm having such a blast with the early parts but I might lower the difficulty and I will give a, a shout out I forget who it was I think it was community manager uh, Manny Manny Perez from Bethesda but maybe somebody else they tweeted out about Doom Eternal it does not matter what difficulty you play in play whatever one you want and have fun with it and this is an attitude that I adore and appreciate when I hear it from developers play whatever mode you like play whatever makes you happy if Ori is a hard game Put it on easy. If Doom Eternal is too difficult for you, put it on easy. If you like being punished who, and, and working your way through a number of different difficulty levels, do that as well. I just played through a very hard campaign in State of Decay. I've done the Lone Wolf achievement in Halo 5. Uh, but I absolutely lowered the difficulty on, on my Sniper Ghost Warrior game because I don't like losing and I want to see cool slow-mo effects. Whatever the game offers you, have some fun with it. Uh, so yeah, in short, plenty of games for you to check out. And I reached out to so many of you and said, hey, how are you feeling the time? What did it? What are you playing? I told you about what I'm playing. What is it that you guys are playing? And a number of you did indeed write in. Todd Oxtra wrote in and sent, sent me a picture of his thumb which with, with a Band-Aid over it and said... This blister on my thumb is from playing Ori and the Will of the Wisps, the last chase sequence. I almost gave up, but I finally beat it. I love the game, but the glitches and bugs on Xbox One S hurt it for me. It makes me worry for how well games will continue to perform on this dated hardware. Todd, I'm super glad you enjoyed Ori, and this is not the first time I've heard you tell me that your Xbox One S has underperformed for you and had a number of issues. I believe Control was the other game uh, that you were frustrated by in that. And I, too, wonder that same thing, because much of my gaming takes place on an Xbox One X. And I saw some of those technical issues with Control and with, with Ori, but they didn't take me out of the experience or damage it overall for me. But it sounds like that's happening for you as well. And so it'll be interesting to see as Series X arrives to our doorstep, either in holiday 2020, which is what Microsoft is currently saying, or if that gets pushed due to the production concerns, whatever it is, it'll be interesting to see where the Xbox One S ends up in that family of devices along with the X, along with if any of you are using the VCR Xbox One from, from 2013, I, I want to know why you're still using it. Uh, if I could be honest, is it a financial choice? Is it just not broken on you? You see no reason to upgrade. But that 900p system, why not go for an S given its its cost or an X? What's holding you back? Uh, let me know your thoughts on that, guys. I'm very curious to hear how your games perform on those systems. But yeah, Todd, I wonder the same thing about those S uh, systems and how they'll work on dated uh, content. Justin Wood also wrote in. He said he's been playing Animal Crossing recently with a fair bit of Ori and place, uh, uh, PSO2, which is Fantasy Star Online. He said PSO has been fantastic, and I'll put a lot of time into it. I love the fact that you can change classes without building a new character. In Ori 2, I'm stuck but enjoying it but not loving it yet. Interesting, Justin. Thank you for writing in, good sir. I appreciate it. I'm, ho I'm glad you're enjoying Animal Crossing, as so many of our friends uh, seem to be doing uh, with their Switch and on the Nintendo side, and that's a great game to play right now uh, if you're needing a bit of happiness in your life. I'm so fascinated by Fantasy Star Online 2 because in my mind, that's an old game, but so many people are loving it. Maybe I've just got the wrong idea, and uh, not having to change classes as you rebuild your character seems to be or I'm sorry, change classes without having to build a new character. That is a wonderful feature. I love the idea that you can respec in any game uh, whatsoever. So that's real cool. Very cool. 
Antonio Guillen wrote in and he said, Animal Crossing delivers escapism and simplicity that I needed. It's also calming, as they say, except for the Nook phone ringing off every five minutes. Yeah, Tom Nook, I've heard, is is rather greedy. He reminds me of Don Matrick, if we could be honest. So uh, who knows there? But I'm glad, Antonio, you're enjoying Animal Crossing. And my heart goes out to you, buddy. I know you had to isolate a bit from the kiddo uh, as you, you were a bit under the weather with your newborn. Uh, there you're doing your best to, to, to be a good dad and stay away but I love you very much buddy and I hope you're doing well Staggerilla writes in and he's been playing Bless Unleashed he says I've never been into MMOs but this one has got me hooked I like the progression the missions and the questing and I just really like it and it's free to play that is cool, Staggerilla. I have also seen Bless Unleashed pop up on my radar uh, from a number of different people checking it out. I'm glad that you're liking it. MMOs might be the right type of game to jump into right now. If you're if you're into the MMO life or you need to occupy your time, that might be the way forward for you. I know my favorite MMO of all time was actually DC Universe Online because I'm a big nerd and I loved it. Uh, I played that a lot with my buddy Kevin. But uh, I right now, at least at, at this point, with our, our isolated senses, I'm enjoying playing through a lot of other experiences that are shorter. Uh, and an MMO may not be the right pace for me, but I'm so happy that you're enjoying it. And uh, thank you for writing in, Stagger. Grouchy Surge from the Backlog Busters wrote in, he's playing, and he gave me a list. Animal Crossing, Chrono Trigger, Guns Gore, and Cannoli 2. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know jack about no Animal Crossing, other than, of course, Tom Nook is evil. Uh, but Chrono Trigger is, is certainly a time-honored tradition, but Guns, Gore, and Cannoli 2, I reviewed that back for the Xbox Drive way back when. I love the Guns, Gore, and Cannoli games. They're so silly and set in the 1930s and 40s, uh, and they're, they're a good old-time side-scrolling Contra-style uh, shooters. Those are fun games, and I would imagine you're playing that on Switch. I played it on Xbox when it first came out and really, really dug it. It was a good time for sure. Blaze Knight wrote in saying he's playing Mortal Kombat 11, the Spawn DLC, and I showed some enthusiasm because I love Spawn as a character. He's just a really cool, fascinating character, and right on in line with that Mortal Kombat culture, and I, I also re-downloaded Mortal Kombat 11 so I could play as Spawn, and it, it just finished a few hours ago, so I'm stoked for that. Uh, Blaze Knight said that he is fun. he's a fun one for sure, very cool animations, and the voice actor for him is amazing. That's dope. Uh, your life is dope, and you do dope things. That's what's up. Famous Seamus wrote in, he said he's been playing Ori and the Will of the Wisps, Doom 2016, Horizon Zero Dawn, Control, and To the Moon. And then he offers a question saying, do you believe the lockdowns will result in people buying digital games over physical games after the lockdowns end? Uh, yes, Famous Seamus, I absolutely believe that's, what is, that's what's going to happen. Uh, I have long since been a proponent of the digital front and the digital storefront. Uh, I think digital is the way of the future and that physical does indeed need to go away and die out for a number of different reasons, from, from the low-level ecological sense to it to just the idea that it's more accessible and convenient. Uh, I will say also that in this lockdown time, I have noticed my download speeds on Xbox Live much slower than they were previously, and I have to wonder if that's on Xbox's side or on Spectrum's side, because I don't think it's any any secret that a lot of people believe that their ISPs throttle them uh, in different senses. And I've seen also conversations about whether or not it's gaming that is slowing down or, or putting so much strain on ISPs, and uh, it's quite fascinating. The data that I have seen has shown that streaming 4K, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, that actually brings more information in and out through ISPs than gaming does, which is 
neater too also I, I wonder why and i'm interested to hear why if any of you are technically minded and can tell me why that is why does gaming cost less strain on your cost less strain on your isp than say uh, watching a film or watching a movie i wonder why that is if you're able to tell me great that's fantastic but to your bigger question famous over after this COVID crisis has gone away, will we see people sticking with digital or uh, walking away from physical in a larger sense? And I think the answer is yes, not just for the reasons I listed before, but also GameStop has been in the news for a number of reasons in the past week. Um, GameStop corporate refusing to shut down stores uh, initially because they said they provided an essential service for consumers and selling webcams and entertainment and, and uh, things that were needed for people to work from home and be entertained from home. And so amidst so many other uh, storefronts shutting down, GameStop was saying that they are essential and they should remain open along with hospitals and nursing stations and, and grocery stores to provide for the populace. That has since, since we, that has since from us seeing those initial sites uh, and those initial news stories, it has come out now that many governments are now shutting down GameStops. I think Pennsylvania removed GameStop's uh, license to sell games. Their business license was revoked uh, as a result of this, and GameStop has since said they're doing now what Best Buy and so many other places are doing and offering curbside pickup so that customers cannot come into stores. They've also suspended trade-ins, which will likely damage their circle of life. That is very much how GameStop survives, uh, is a circle of life mentality. And I would imagine that this is going to be hugely damning for their futures that were already in dire straits and trouble. So I wonder, too, what will happen, but I believe that physical games, the time for physical games, uh, has passed. That's not to say that limited run and that that won't be kept alive by niche audience members, but I believe in large part those have faded away, in much the way CDs and, and, and vinyl did for as a result of digital storefronts like iTunes. Notice, though, that when I say that, I mention vinyl by default. There is a wonderful vinyl market for music enthusiasts, and I think the same thing will happen for physical games, people that still want physical and are willing to pay a premium for getting physical. Uh, so take that for what you will, Seamus. Uh, I hope that, that, that my, my realization isn't too damning for what anybody's personal needs and wants are going forward. But for now, I would encourage anybody to stick with digital distribution, avoid interacting with people as, you're, as much as you are able, and enjoy the time to bust the backlog and, and play some games because there's, there's some good escapism to be had. And play stuff that you wouldn't have played before. Maybe diversify it. Maybe check out that older title that we all got on Xbox Live Gold way back when and didn't play at the time. It's just a good time for that, uh, particularly in the wake of, of the potential length of our our uh, lockdown and the, the idea that some games may indeed be delayed as a lot of studios worked remotely now and, and via a number of cloud-based solutions. There's, there's a lot of speculation and no real answers, but the truth and the reality that I want you all to remember is that we are in it together. Nobody can judge you for what type of game you enjoy. You need, you need not play what is most popular, and it's a great time to just enjoy what you like free of that, free of the constraints of trying to make it to the next uh, launch title, to make it to the next one. If Animal Crossing is what you need right now, play it. If Doom Eternal is what you need right now, play it. If you're delving into the backlogs of Game Pass to have a good time, do that. Why not? Take a stroll through something different. That's, uh, that is my recommendation to you there. <laughs>
Well, guys, I've talked quite a bit this episode, and I'm going to transition us into our incredible interview with the the wonderful and, and knowledgeable Rebecca Valentine. She is a staff writer for GamesIndustry.biz and somebody who uh, I reached out to a while back well prior to COVID, and unfortunately, due to COVID, we, our, our conversation changed a bit. But what I was asking her about and the intention of the interview is to shed light on what it means to be a games journalist in the industry, what it means to be a journalist in the gaming industry industry. Uh, What insights has she taken in and learned from her time there working from freelance all the way to to where she is now for a more business sided in a site like gamesindustry.biz that is a bit more objective and factual in its approach and a bit less editorial in its idea. And we talk about that. We talk about what it means to to be a more objective website or to remove a bit of the subjectivity as and when you are able and I think she offered a number of a lot of enthusiasm a lot of excitement to it I so enjoyed talking to her and I would encourage you to go check out her work on gamesindustry.biz and follow her on Twitter at Duck Valentine uh, for sure and please 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 if I may write in and let me know what you thought of the episode email me at insipidghost at gmail.com you can tweet at me at insipidghost on Twitter of course my DMs are always open but please let me know what you thought of the episode let Rebecca know what you thought of the episode if you're able to write write a review for xep at this time right now i would love to see some good news and see those itunes reviews popping that's going to be it for me this week on xep enjoy the interview and i've got more stuff coming to you in the next week do your best to make light of whatever you can i love you all very much and take care all right we are very fortunate now to welcome gameindustry.biz staff writer rebecca valentine to the show to discuss her times working in games journalism and these crazy times that we are currently living in Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And I am happy that you are here, and I am very confident that in you being here, I've torn you away from Animal Crossing (laughs) to discuss so many things. Uh, Are you enjoying Animal Crossing before we dive too far into anything? Oh my gosh, my heart. It's it's exactly what I needed. I, I, I'm in a weird situation. I mean, everybody's in a weird situation. I'm in a unique but not objectively worse situation where I was scheduled to take a week of vacation this week. Um, I was going to be in San Francisco for the Game Developers Conference, mm-hmm. and that is obviously no longer happening. I'm not going. But I am very fortunate to work for a company that is very generous with its vacation time, and I really need to use some of mine. And I don't know how long we're going to be in this situation. So I just kept my week of vacation, but now I can't leave my apartment. So now I have a week of being alone in my apartment playing Animal Crossing, and part of that sounds a little, like, dubious, but it also sounds kind of nice in its way, so, you know, good good time to take a week off, I guess. No, I I completely understand, because it's (laughs) tough to navigate that conversation. You recognize, of course, that in being gamers, we... Our hobby is indeed staying at home and communicating via you know, teleworking and having a good time playing games and enjoying that process. Simultaneously, uh, in acknowledging that we enjoy being at home, well, you're also making, accidentally yeah. perhaps, making light of a very serious situation. So it's a weird thing that we navigate now. Yeah, and it's definitely made me more aware because I, I do I do already work. I, I'm extremely lucky, and I recognize how, how fortunate I am in this situation. You know, I already work from home. Um, I have you know a company that is is pretty secure. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to keep doing my job and keep getting paid for doing my job 
for presumably as long as this lasts. I mean, I guess we don't know, but um, I, I'm extremely fortunate. Uh, but it has made me very aware, you know, kind of watching, you know, my friends who are in, you know, less fortunate situations who are suddenly stuck at home who aren't usually. It's made me very aware that, you know, I, I do kind of take for granted the fact that I can just sit at home all day. And probably once this all lifts, I should, you know, make more of an effort to go outside, stretch a little bit, you know, go see other people more often. It's made me a little bit more aware of my lifestyle choices and the ones that are maybe a little bit unhealthy to me. And I would imagine that's a level of reflection that we are all hopefully taking into account on a number of levels and being responsible in that. Now, you do work from home as a staff writer for GamesIndustry.biz, and with the GDC conference canceled, I would imagine in many ways your job has been adjusting to it. Can you talk to us first, though, about how it is you arrived in games journalism and your time at GamesIndustry.biz? Yeah, absolutely. So how I got here, of course, entirely by accident, um, as I think most people, many people in the games industry uh, seem to have shown up here uh, from various locations. I originally uh, went to school. I got I got degrees in English and philosophy. I around the time I graduated, I I had a moment where I was leading up to it where I thought that I was going to go into creative writing. I thought I was going to get like, you know, go into a master's program and write a bunch of short stories and books and be like the sci-fi writer. And that's what I thought I was going to do. Um, and then I, it's, it's a long story that I won't go into, but I, I had something happen where I, it, it clicked with me that I loved, I loved doing that. I loved creative writing, but it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And I, I was just very certain in that decision, but I didn't know what else I wanted to do. So I got, you know, I got a job as a technical writer. I was uh, writing for a company that does training for pilots and it was a good job. You know, it paid well. I, you know, had good coworkers. It was, it was stable and solid. It was good, uh, but I was bored. I, I was just really, really bored. Um, and I, you know, I played video games just sort of, sort of casually, like not, I wasn't like extremely online or anything, but I was really into Nintendo games. Um, I played a lot of RPGs. Um, I had, you know, I, I was uh, with someone at the time who, you know, it was my first time having an Xbox 360 mm -hmm. available to me. And so I was catching up on a whole bunch of stuff. Like I was, I was playing Babel. I was playing like Assassin's Creed. I was playing all these games that I'd never gotten a chance to play before. I was playing Skyrim. Um, and so I, I was starting to broaden my horizons in gaming, and I had a friend who worked for um, this, it was this network of sites called the Fansided Network, um, and he worked for one of the sports sites there. And he said, hey, uh, their gaming site, at the time it was called Gamesided, now it's called AppTrigger, um, their, their gaming site is looking for writers. You said you're bored, you like video games, and you're a good writer, you should probably be able to go write for them. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was a ridiculous idea, but I got, I got some encouragement from some people, and I applied, and I you know, got, got accepted, and I... It, it, it was a, I, I always feel, everybody always asks me, you know, how I got here. And I always feel a little bit dicey about explaining it because when I first started, I was writing for free mm -hmm. and I do not think now knowing what I know, um, I don't think that it is right to ask people to work for free. And I think that everybody who wants to get into this industry should avoid it all possible working for free unless they are writing on their own personal blogs, like their own medium blog and writing for themselves. Don't work for a company that can afford to pay you, but isn't. I don't mm -hmm. think that's right. That is what I did. And I did get to where I am successfully, but I, I very firmly believe there are better paths out there. So um, I wrote for them um, for a while, just as a volunteer writer. And I discovered that I really liked it. And I was doing that on top of my full-time day job, um, but I really liked it. I decided I wanted to push a little bit harder. So I started writing a lot and I started taking, I would get review opportunities and I would take on reviews that no one else wanted. And I would, you know, take on covering presentations like, like online, like PSX stuff that nobody else wanted to cover. And I, I really worked hard for like that year and they bumped me up to an editor position and I started getting paid a little bit. Um, it still wasn't worth the work I was doing, you know, like objectively, but I, I was really proud of myself. And 
that year, uh, we were coming, that, that was 2016 when that happened, and going into 2017, uh, E3 was coming up, and my co-editor, Daniel George, who is wonderful and basically, like, is the reason I'm even here, um, he uh, suggested, look, you know, we keep, every year we get invites from these PR companies that we're, you know, building this relationship with, we're getting invites to come to see their games at E3, and we can never go. Um, so let's just go. Let's just save up our money and pay our way there and go. And I, you know what, I said yes, and we saved up our money that year, and at E3 2017, we went. And <clears throat> there was a moment on the show floor where it was it was actually at the Xbox uh, presentation. It was it was after their, their showcase that year, and they had a bunch of games on the floor, and I was there as media, and it was just like, you know, lights and color and so many people, and it was so exciting. And I went over to, they had just revealed the Darwin Project. Mm-hmm. And I went over there, and I, I, the Darwin Project's fine. I don't have like any special attachment to that game, but I went over there, and I was watching some people play, and one of the developers came up to me, and it was, this was like the first time I talked to any like developer at E3. Mm-hmm. And he... He taps me on the shoulder and he goes, hey, want a beer? And I was like really surprised. And I said, sure. And he hands me this beer that seemingly appeared out of nowhere. And then he just starts talking about his game for like nonstop for like 10 minutes. And I had questions prepared because I had planned to come over and talk to him about it. But I, I couldn't get in any of my questions edgewise because he was, so, and this is not a bad thing, because he was so excited about his game. His his, his baby, like this thing that he had made um, was on the show floor at xbox at Mm -hmm. e3 and he was so proud of it and he was so excited and he was telling me all these cool things about how it got made and that's that's when it clicked for me that this is this is what i want to do i want to talk to people who have made really cool games and i want to like hear them just obsess about their babies and tell me what they love about them and what's great about them and so from there um i i pushed really hard over the next year i started pitching um to other sites uh, as a freelancer um i had uh, pieces published in pc gamer um i did some tech stuff for Wirecutter. Um, I, you know, wrote for several sites and then I, after about almost a year of freelancing and then do, continuing to do that contract work with AppTrigger and then also with a full-time job on top of that, I was starting to get really stressed, but I had a portfolio. And so I started applying for jobs and I, you know, applied for several, I applied for, you know, stuff at Game Informer and IGN and a whole, just a whole host of sites. Mm-hmm. And I finally got a call back from games industry and I, I had not expected that to be fruitful because it is a business publication. It's a B2B publication that specifically talks to developers, publishers, and industry people, you know, people who are making decisions, not like a consumer audience. And I didn't expect to get hear back from them because I didn't know anything about the business side. Mm -hmm. And what they have told me since is that they were looking for somebody who, you know, could write, which I can, and who understood, excuse me, who understood on a base level, you know, the, the industry and who loved games, but who was willing to learn. And, you know, because there aren't there aren't that many business sites, there aren't that many business writers out there. So they weren't going to, you know, get a flood of extremely experienced business candidates, but they wanted someone that they could, you know, you know, bring up and and teach. And I guess that's what I was. And so now I'm here. Uh, It'll be two years in May. And it's honestly been fantastic. They're super great people to work with. and I have learned so much. Oh, my God. Oh, there's so much to unpack on that. And, and Sorry, it's, that was the, a really long story. That's, no, that is the best story because my own ventures into journalism echo in a very similar manner uh, and and moving in different career directions. And I love your the advice you gave to freelance writers. It's it's brilliant. And I, too, have seen that same level of excitement on, on a smaller scale with developers who are just happy to talk about their projects. And that is such a rewarding experience to get to be with someone who enjoys the art they make. Oh, man. Now, let me ask you this. In arriving at GamesIndustry.biz and and arriving on a far more perhaps serious or or legitimate aspect than an enthusiast 
network or, or, or fan level writing freelance all the way up through your experiences. What are the big differences from being at a full-on publication like GameIndustry.biz to what you began in freelance? Um, I mean, it's, oh gosh, there's a lot of differences. I mean, some of the differences are just with the are, are just because of the nature of the publication, like, right, it being a business publication, the tone is very different. You know, I did, I did used to be part of Enthusiast Press. Mm -hmm. And so the, the work that we do is very different. It is, it is mostly news writing and interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't do reviews, we don't do previews, and we do editorials, uh, but they're usually very serious minded, like, like, they're very, it's very straightforward and informative. And it was it was a huge tonal shift mm -hmm. from the kind of, you know, very opinionated, you know, cozy, like, hey, look at these games kind of writing that I was doing before, which I'm not knocking that like I actually there are times when I miss that um mm -hmm. like that that is that's a super valid thing and I think I think we need all kinds of writing but the mm -hmm. kind of writing I'm doing is very different now it's very serious it's very straightforward um being at a being at a full publication um I mean I, mean, the, I think the biggest gosh the biggest change I think is just like the level of resources right mm -hmm. um and just, just across the board right like I have I have experienced people who have been doing this for years who are there to teach me and help me and guide me mm -hmm. um that's really wonderful um I you know it, it's a full-time job which is great um, and I'm extremely lucky, extremely fortunate for that. Um, and there's there's just like backing to do kinds of things. Like we, they they can hush Robo. They can send me to they can send me to events. You know, I can go. I I went to PAX East before everything blew up. I was going to go to GDC. Um, I wasn't going to do E3 this year. I kind of really want to do E3 again. Um, but I hoping that all this clears up, I will you know get to do PAX West later this year probably. Um, I get to I get to travel more. And I also you know just having. There's like two things when you're getting into this industry, right? Like you want to build your own kind of set of connections, right? Like you want to be a kind person. You want to talk to people and treat them like people. Mm -hmm. And you want to do that because it's the right thing to do. Um, it has the added advantage of the fact that you end up building a network of connections for yourself who, you know, when there's a story that you want to pursue or when you want to talk to someone about their game, they're more likely to respond to you. And that's something that you do on an individual level. But mm -hmm. having the name of a publication tied to you helps start those conversations a lot more easily. Like sending, sending just a cold email to someone saying, hey, I saw you're doing a thing. Can we talk about it? I want to, you know, write a, a piece on it. Uh, when you're from... I mean, you know, when you're from like a smaller site, it doesn't, it, it's harder. It's like legitimately harder. And I have like infinite amount of sympathy for people who have these really great ideas and want to do these really great pieces and just can't get anyone to open the door. Like that's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, when you have it, when you have a site name attached to you, it becomes a little bit easier. People are, I mean, it's not, it's not a guarantee, right? Like some people still just, you know, either don't want to talk to you or can't talk to you, but it, it, it does help. And that, you know, helps you expand your network faster and that helps you, you know, do better work in the end, which is the goal. Like the goal, the goal is to write true things that are informative to your audience mm -hmm. and to tell all the stories that are important and you know I, I anything that helps me do that better mm -hmm. um and with you know better consideration for the people that I'm doing it for is great you touch on I think the the role of a journalist and the idea of bringing true things to consumers or audiences is and in any industry for sure what do you think separates gamesindustry.biz apart from, say, a, a Kotaku, a Polygon, an IGN, a Game Informer? I mean, I think the main thing is the audience it speaks to, right? Like, mm -hmm. all those other sites that you listed are consumer press. Like, they are speaking to large audiences of people who play and love games, which mm -hmm. is great. I am glad. We, those are all incredible sites. I am so glad they exist. Mm -hmm. um, we we occupy, like, a very kind of small corner. There's only a couple sites like us. Uh, there's Gamasutra. Um, there's GamesBeat. Uh, there's GamesDaily. Uh, those the other three mainly. Mm -hmm. um, VGC does a little bit of it. Uh, and then Kota actually Kotaku and Washington Post, 
sorry, that's a whole other topic. There's actually been kind of a surge of interest in more business-minded um, journalism in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what, what we do is we specifically speak to developers, publishers, uh, games investors, people who are doing the business of games. Mm-hmm. That's who we talk to. And so th- this is my, this is my like, it feels like a brag when I say this, but it really was just like a what the heck moment to me. Um, this was at this is at GDC last year. Um, I was at and again at an Xbox. All these things happened to me at Xbox events. Um, I was at an Xbox Indies event and I was playing The Sojourn. Um, I was just playing it and I felt you know when you're sitting somewhere in a room and you like like there's people coming and going in the room. It's a busy room, mm-hmm. um, but you feel you feel somebody watching you. Sure. Um, yeah, so I just felt that somebody's like standing behind me, and I, I kept playing for a second. I figured it was just someone watching, but then I thought, you know, maybe I should check and make sure it's not like the developer, you know, because if, if it's if it's someone involved in the game, I should introduce myself. So I take off my headphones and I turn around, and Phil Spencer's standing behind me, mm-hmm. and I recognized him, and I'm like, "Hi, I'm Red Valentine. I write for GamesIndustry.biz," and he shakes my hand and he says, "Hi, I'm Phil Spencer. I work for Xbox," and I'm like, "I know." <laughs> <laughs> and he, and then he says, I read your newsletter every day. And that was just like incredible to me. Like the people who make, we, we do not get like huge amounts of traffic, but the traffic that we do get is the people who are making the decisions about how the games that we love get made. And I think that, I think the work we do is really valuable for, I mean, a lot of reasons, but for that, for that reason, particularly, um, I think we also, some of the stuff that I write, like on a day-to-day basis, I, I think everything I write is important. I think some of it is a little more boring uh, mm-hmm. than the rest of it, which is okay. Like, you know, not everything that is important has to be interesting. Um, but some of it is, is a little drier or a little like, okay, like this tiny company got some funding from this venture capitalist, like. Okay, great. But the thing, the reason why that ends up being important is, you know, in, in two, three, four years when they're, they announce their game and you find out what it is and there's like some story around that game, that information now exists somewhere about, okay, who influenced it? Who gave, who gave them money? Like who, who was a part of this process and what does that say about, you know, how that shaped the process of getting the game made? Like what does that say about that company? Mm-hmm. What can we say about, you know, how they become successful or how they don't become successful if, if God forbid something goes wrong with that company, you know, who, who was invested in it? Who was a part of that? Who was making decisions? Like, I think all of those things are incredibly important and they help tell the story of, again, how the games that we love get made. Um, and so that, that I think sets us apart, um, or the business sites apart. Um, I think all of us do things a little bit differently. Um, Games Daily does really good work. They do a lot of, uh, reaching out to, uh, lawyers and, uh, data analysis and a lot of other people to get, you know, kind of, uh, industry, like, intelligent analytical comment on the current situation and so they can provide a little more analysis mm-hmm. um gama sutra focuses a lot more on like the technicalities of game development like they do a lot of blog posts on developers you know talking about the very specific details um and, and yeah it's just everybody does like a little a little bit of a different corner of it and i think i think all the work that we all do is important um but you know we're the best <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool to hear and i love that story i there are some people that just bring a power or presence to a room, uh, whether yeah. it's bright or dark. It's wonderful to hear a, such a positive and bright story like that. Uh, and I would have to imagine that in your line of work, you do have an opportunity to see many of, of what we perhaps on the enthusiast or gamer side feel are powerful presence presences. Do you see on a business level those impacts for those personalities, the Spencers, the Reggies, the people that, that we and the Yoshidas on the outside might might think, oh, they must be the best. Do you see on a business side them impacting the industry? Yeah, I mean I guess it's kind of my job to sort of look at them and have conversations um, about that kind of thing. And it's actually, 
it's been a little bit of, it's been a little bit tough for me because I I am a very I, I am the kind of person who I think a lot of people would assume would instead of writing for a business site would you know be a Twitch streamer or you know be writing for Enthusiast Press or something like that because I just have this big personality and you know I love I love going to events and playing games. I love doing that so much, but that's not, you know, what I usually get to do. Um, and so I, 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 str- I do struggle sometimes with kind of flipping that switch of, oh yeah, Reggie, Reggie's so cool to Reggie is a business person. Well, Reggie doesn't work for Nintendo anymore. Um, Reggie is a business person making business decisions and he is going to give us a very corporate response, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it's difficult to flip that switch. And I, you know, I get called out by my colleagues sometimes on our podcast because I'll, I'll say something that's very enthusiast and then they'll be like, well, no, they, they, they have to do this because of X or Y or Z. And mm-hmm. so I'm still learning. I think in that regard, um, and especially when it comes to sort of the big names, you know, I'm I'm relatively a newcomer to the industry. I've been writing about games since 2014, but in 2014, I didn't know what Dark Souls was, mm-hmm. um, and I, that that's the go-to example. But I, I really didn't know what a lot of things were, um, and so I've really only been on the side of it for like two or three years. And the people that I work with are you know wonderful human beings who, for the most part, have been doing this for years and years and years. And they give you know they help give me context to those kinds of things, and they help me see okay you know this person is making this decision because of X or look at their history of making these decisions and this is probably what they're going to do next. Um, and that's the kind of thing I still need to learn. I need to get practiced at it. And I do that by reading a lot, uh, reading a lot of, of news, not just the news that we write, but news just all across the industry from all those wonderful sites that you've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do it by writing a lot and I do it by listening to other people who know what they're talking about and, you know, both, both listening to what they say and then using my knowledge from, you know, the, everything else that I'm getting to sort of form my own, you know, analysis of it. So I'm still, I'm still learning on that front, but I'm trying really hard. Well, let me ask you this then. And many people wrote this question in and when they found that I was going to be speaking to you, does YouTube or social media, Twitters, does the rise of influencers, does that cloud your ability to, to remain objective or rather focus on the business side because of either their enthusiasm, what we might affectionately call passion or, or anger sometimes in that space about any number of, of decisions that are made on a business level, does it does it make it difficult to remain objective or to not weigh in on topics that maybe aren't as necessary or pertinent to your work as a journalist? No, I mean, I think I, I think I maintain a pretty good separation. So um, when I'm, if you, if you ever read games industry about biz, you'll see that the tone of our site is incredibly straightforward. Mm-hmm. We have a really good style guide um, that my colleague um, Hayden Taylor actually, they made very, very recently. And it's like really like firm about the kind of tone that our site has. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've all been having this tone for so long. It's incredibly straightforward. It's very news. It's fact, 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 fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was initially a little bit of an adjustment just because of what I've been doing before. But now it's just like a switch in my brain flips. Like I, when I'm writing news, I look at what I'm being presented with and I write like a bulleted list of the facts. Mm-hmm. And then I go and do, I usually go like do a little bit of research and try to find any more pertinent facts from like previous news stories or whatever, like, oh, this thing happened last week and it's probably relevant to this story, so I should include it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's how I write um, this kind of thing. And so it's, it's very easy for me to remain objective because there's not – like there's no room for opinion there. There's no room for a spin. I think I think I think if there is any, and I, and I guess like I guess it's unfair to say that there's just zero spin at all in coverage because anything that anyone writes is written by a human being who has their own thoughts on the world, and the very decision to cover something or not cover something is made by a human being. And I I do think that that can influence sometimes in terms of what we cover, right? Like. 
and and maybe even in terms of like how we cover. Okay, so yeah, you know, you know what? Now I'm changing my opinion as I talk to you about this. No, um, so I here's think... an example. Here's an example from this last week, right? Like, so GameStop is having this whole thing go on right now. Where earlier this week, um, they were there. There were some stories that came out from Kotaku and Vice, really, really good stories. Talked to some GameStop employees who were upset um, because of GameStop's precautions or non-precautions uh, against the spread of coronavirus, right? And they didn't have enough hand sanitizer in their stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't have a clear policy on what they were going to do if they got sick, uh, like what, how they would have paid time off or not. Sure. Um, and they were very upset. And um, so we wrote that up. And then we also found out that like GameStop was trying to keep stores open in California, even though this and San Mateo County, specifically the Bay Area, uh, when there was a shutdown in place and they were staying, saying that their stores were essential. And, Video game stores are not essential, is mm-hmm. my opinion. Um, and so we're covering this, and I, I reach out to GameStop, and I get a statement, and it's like a three-paragraph-long statement, and it is very much a PR statement. It, it has it has some useful information in it, right? But it's very much a PR statement um, from the company that um, you know says it's trying to make GameStop look good. And there is a level at which I have to break apart that statement and say, okay, I can't just present everything that's handed to me without any kind of critical eye, right? Like, I need to look at this and ask myself, what about this statement is useful to our readers? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it useful to reprint the whole thing? Mm -hmm. Or is that just giving GameStop basically a platform to say anything they want to anyone? And is that acceptable? Um, so I, I do have to answer those kinds of questions every day. I ended up not reprinting the whole statement. I ended up, I, I accurately paraphrased parts of it. I said, here are the things they said they are going to do. And then I reprinted a portion of it that I felt explained itself better than I could have paraphrased. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the decision I made. Several other sites made similar or different decisions. Like everybody made different decisions on what to do with that statement. Um, and I, I think that's just like the kind of example of the kinds of questions that, you know, we have to answer every, every day in our day to day. And even, you know, we try very hard to, First, you know, tell tell accurate information, like it has to be true mm-hmm. um, and confirm that it's true, um, to tell information that is useful to our readers and not clog it up with information that is not useful to our readers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, three, to, I don't know, make, make sure that we're doing so in an ethical way and in a way that, you know, has empathy to it mm-hmm. and for, for just human beings in general. And so it's... It's really hard, and I, I don't know what the right answer is there, but I made the best decision that I could, mm-hmm. you know, based on, you know, the, the policies of our site, um, what are, what I know our readership is interested in knowing, and, you know, my I, I guess my, my own ethical compass that I, I try to put together. So I, I, guess, I guess I've, I've gone, like, on this huge tangent on your question, um, but that's – yeah, you were asking about like YouTubers and influencers, but but I guess what I'm saying is the the world in general influences everybody. Sure. Like it's not just YouTubers and influencers and social media, right? Like I'm free to say whatever I want on my Twitter. I'm free to have like my own opinions, and I can if I'm really bad at GameStop, like I retweeted that story and I was like, what the heck? Mm-hmm. Like come on! And that was where my opinion came out. Like I can yell as much as I want on my Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, to a degree, I well, need that, to be nice. But well, let me ask you yeah. this then: Do you find that because running a story, making a choice to run a story, is on some level, perhaps a subjective decision, and people could weigh in on that idea that, that giving exposure, as you said, to not might might support or, or damn a, a various uh, approach to a story. It's something that I think we see well outside of the games industry at the moment. Do you find that you have to defend your choices more often because you're so accessible to readership now by way of social media? Ah, uh, yeah, a little bit. It's. It definitely has grown the, the larger a following I've gotten and the larger a following games industry has gotten. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, 
Um, I mean, I could, I, I'm probably like eating up lots of time here with these long anecdotes, but I could, I could give an example of that if you felt like it. Um, it's, it's definitely happened before. Um, and it happened, it happens kind of on two levels. Like, uh, sometimes I will just get people replying to the story itself on the GamesIndustry.biz Twitter, mm-hmm. or like, I'll find out that it showed up on Reddit and people are like, why did you cover this? Like, why, why did you even do this? Like, what was this? Um, and I, Depending on who it is, like, like if it's just, like, somebody with, like, zero followers who's just, like, why did you write this? I mean, I don't care. Like, whatever. I don't care what you have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's, like, a developer. Sometimes it's people in the industry. And I, I have had occasions where people who are – people who, whose work I love, like, le- people whose work I respect and love have legitimately just, like, taken screenshots or taken links to my articles and been, like, what is this? Why did why did this person cover it like this? This is, this is like, this is – a not even a spin, but like they shouldn't have given this person airtime at all. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it like really hurts when that happens because I tried really hard to make the best decision that I could, but I try, especially when it's people who, you know, have some sort of like horse in this race, right? Like I try to listen to that and be like, okay, you know, I can't change it. I can't take the article down, but why, why are they concerned in the way that they're concerned? What could I have done better here? And sometimes the answer is nothing. Sometimes the answer is no, I feel like I was right here. Um, but sometimes the answer is, okay, maybe I should have done it a little bit differently. I'm going to talk to my editor about how I feel about this, and then I'm going to learn from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's harder. And then and then people can find my personal Twitter and sometimes send me stupid DMs. But, mm-hmm. like, I usually just delete those unless it's, like, coming from – again, coming from, like, somebody who might know what they're talking about. Well, I, for one, am shocked that that a, a games journalist might receive stupid DMs. That's just <laughs> wild. Prior to COVID, a lot of the conversation in the games industry had to do with accessibility and equality and representation in gaming. More recently, and just researching for this interview, one of the most enjoyable articles that I read recently from you was the LGBT plus pillars of representation. Yeah. I loved that aspect. I really think it's an important conversation, and I get to be subjective here, that we do have more accessibility for gamers of all types, be that physical, emotional, or mental equality in gaming, and you had so many thoughts in that article. What responsibility does the gaming industry have to further that conversation of accessibility and representation? Yeah, so first, I definitely want to give credit on that to Tori Schaefer. I wrote the article. It was based on a talk by Tori Schaefer mm-hmm. um, uh, at, she's a, she's uh, from Pro, Studio Proletariat, um, but it was her GDC 2020 talk representing LGBT plus characters in games, two case studies. And it was about her work doing that um, in two different games. Um, so she, she was wonderful. It was a wonderful talk. It would not have been a good article without that wonderful talk to basically like transpose effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was great, but yeah. Um, I mean, I think it, it, it has, it has the responsibility because it's just like the right thing to do, right? Like it feels like the, the dumb, obvious answer, right? Like it is the right thing to do to make things more inclusive and accessible and diverse. Literally everybody deserves to be able to both play games, like actually physically or, you know, digitally play them. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see themselves in not, not literally every game. Like I don't expect every game to have a protagonist. that's just like me, but to be able to find games that they see themselves in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's just, that's just like fundamentally true like everybody deserves that and right now not everybody has that and everybody deserves to be able to make games if they want to Mm -hmm. like if they want to get into this industry and make make something they deserve to not have that gatekeeped by ridiculous people who think that only a certain type of person should be making games Mm -hmm. or that people who are different from them are somehow lesser um or you know you know not as not as not as smart or not as good Mm -hmm. um, or not, not as capable of making games. And everybody deserves that chance that they want it. And I, I fundamentally believe that to be true. And I, I fundamentally believe that the people who 
are in power, the people who are in a position, whether it's because they have a platform or it's because they're in charge of a studio or they have, you know, they have a podcast or a Twitter account with a lot of followers or, you know, whatever position they have in this industry. Um, if you have some kind of power or platform, it is your responsibility to elevate other voices and help people help people up and help people who have, um, you know, these diverse opinions or who maybe, maybe are marginalized or maybe don't have as easy a time, you know, just it, for some people walking into the games industry is just like, you know, opening a door and walking in. Mm -hmm. And for some people it is, you know, they have to like, I don't know, fight a bunch of, you know, freaking orcs like outside the house. Mm -hmm. And then like, you know, I don't know, like climb a mountain to get in the door. Like they ha that's a terrible analogy. I don't know where that came from. Um, but they have to do like all the, like a million other things just to walk in a door. And if you can make it easier for people to walk in that door in any way, then you should do it. Like if you have that power, I mean, that's just, it's just the right thing to do. I don't, I don't know. I, I wish I had like a, a better response to that, but it, the industry is better with more diverse people. It just is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's we get a, we get better games. Um, we get we get better content in general, and we end up you know we end up with a kinder and more interesting and I, I don't know just like like a better space altogether. It's such a wonderful. I love the way you worded that, and I often find myself talking to my students uh, now virtually, but about the idea that if you have an easier time entering an arena due to any number of things, whether it be it skin color, gender. Uh, where you come from, how much money your parents make, then you have a responsibility to see to it that others are treated fairly and well. And I love the, the way you uh, approach that. There's a passion behind that that I, I hope and see actively more people in the industry taking note of and utilizing themselves. And so it's a wonderful thing. Do you think that journalists have a responsibility to use that platform more so than others, perhaps? I don't know. I mean, I don't know more so than others, but I, I think everybody has a responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I guess this goes back to kind of what we were saying earlier, like choosing what to cover, right? Like when we, when we see people who have an interesting angle on, you know, helping the industry become more diverse or more accessible or people who have done something in particular that has furthered diversity or inclusion at, you know, their studio or their company or whatever, we, we do try to pursue that because we, we, as a site, we think it is important and we think it is right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I guess that if you want to call us biased towards inclusivity and diversity, I mean, we're guilty, right? Like that's, you should be guilty of that. Mm -hmm. you, you should be guilty of, of trying to, you know, elevate diverse voices. And so, you know, that, that's part of why I wrote the talk. Um, because, and also because it was a good talk and it was super informative. Um, and it was from somebody who had the experience doing the work and, you know, doing it well. Um, and it was helpful to, to our audience, obviously. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think journalists have, have about, when I say the same responsibility as everyone, I don't mean to downplay it. I mean, I think everybody that has any kind of platform, again, whether that's a podcast or a YouTube channel or anything, you know, has a responsibility to talk about those issues. And so I think, I think it depends, you know, on what kind of journalism you're doing. But I also don't think that there are really, I, I could not name you a field in this world or a genre of journalism in this world that is not impacted by these issues. Right. Like, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I'm, yeah. I mean, the answer is yes. I, I think journalists have a responsibility to do this. I think they have a great responsibility to do this, um, especially if their platforms are large and, you know, 
very well read or noticed by people who are in places of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, again, that's why it's important to us because we have this readership um, that is in a position to make decisions in the industry. And if we can write this article, like the one that you, the example you gave, um, this GDC talk that Tori Schaefer gave that was really good, that already, you know, was seen by a lot of people. But if we can point to that and say, hey, this person did this really cool thing, you know, she wrote these characters and she has these ideas for how, you know, games can, LGBT plus characters can be represented while in gaming. If you were maybe thinking of that at your studio, here's a way that you can, you know, here's a, here's a thing to consider when doing it to make sure that you do it well. And so, you know, it, it fits everything. It's true. It's relevant to our audience. Um, and it is, you know, it, it is something that can make the industry, you know, better and improve it. And I, I, I think all that matters. As Sorry, wonderful. I'm so rambly. No, that is that's what people want to hear you more than me. You're good. That's why I'm so excited to have you on. So I have a few more questions, if you don't mind. Uh, in the Xbox community, the idea of inclusivity is being pushed uh, a lot. We had the Xbox Adaptive Controller. Recently, we ha- we've seen the Women in Gaming Initiative. Are these the right way to go about making the games industry more inclusive? Would you would you like to see different or more initiatives made? I mean, I so so one I can't. I personally can't speak to the accessibility thing just from like a personal standpoint. I'm an able-bodied person. I do not need uh, the adaptive controller to Mm -hmm. play games. I will say that for that, we, you know, you should look to people who are experts in that field. And I, my understanding is that the consensus on that is that it is a very good thing. And it's, it's not the end. We are not done uh, with, with, making games more accessible, but it is an incredibly good start. Um, and so I would, I would defer to the experts on that, but I think, I think that that one is generally positive, but you know, as far as women in gaming initiatives go and just, and just diversity initiatives in general, I mean, yeah, I want to see more. I want to see different ones because I don't think that we solve, we solve this problem with, you know, there's not a silver bullet, right? Like there's not, we, we don't make a women in gaming initiative and then say, okay, we're done. We made things diverse. Great. Good job, everybody. Go home. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not how it works, right? I think women in gaming is great. I, th- I think that I, I think Xbox um, actually, honestly, of all three platform holders, has been really good and proactive. And I, I see that on my side because, you know, I get to go, again, I get to go to events like GDC and PAX. And, like, pretty much every time I go to a big industry event, I get an email in my inbox from Xbox, from some from one of the PR people there, one of the wonderful people there. Mm-hmm. And they say, hey, we're doing, you know, the these events, either for women in gaming or, you know, like, uh, I know I'm, I'm going to get the names wrong because I'm talking off the top of my head, but I know that they have several initiatives um, for people of color um, in gaming. And I think, I think uh, LGBTQ folks in gaming as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they have these initiatives for them as well. And, you know, they, they're like always inviting me to these things. They're like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to come to this? Do you want to see what it is? Do you want to cover it? And I, I see like kind of the responses from people and the responses generally seem to be good. And so those are good. Those, um, you know, they, they do different things, right? Like they give at least the women in gaming stuff, they give, they give women like a space to talk to other women about their issues and be encouraging and to say, say, Hey, you're not alone in experiencing this thing. Here's, you know, how I overcame it. You know, here's how I can help you overcome it. And they give women a chance to network with maybe a little bit less, I don't want to say fear. That's maybe a little bit too strong a word, but maybe it's not, um, maybe a little bit less fear or a little bit less, you know, anxiety about, you know, potentially being, you know, seen as other or lesser, um, Mm -hmm. just for being a woman. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think they're really good. I don't think they're the end. I think we need all types of initiatives. I think again, anybody with a, an Xbox has power. Microsoft is certainly a company in a position of power. They are exactly the people to be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know I, I both want to say, yeah, they should do more because everybody should do more. I think they are actively working on doing more, um, as far as I know. Um, but I, I, I think that everybody should like everybody should, and everybody should look kind of at what, what kind of power they have and what kind of position they are in to do, you know, this kind of work and say, okay, what, what makes, 
what makes the most sense for us? Like how, how is our position and how is our power best used to help elevate and encourage and improve diversity? Right. And it, it, the answer is going to be different for everybody. And the, the other thing I guess is that it shouldn't be just a group of cis white men making that decision. It shouldn't be a group of cis white men saying, Oh yeah, we need some diversity in here. <clears throat> we should, uh, we should figure out, you know, how to do that. Right. Like you go, you go ask people, you go ask people who need these kinds of programs and want these kinds of programs. And you, you first like diversify the group of people who are talking about this in the first place and say, what do you need? How can we help you? Mm-hmm. We have this power. We have this platform. We have this privilege. How do we use it to help you? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think that's like the most important thing to do. So I think the answer is you're always going to need a bunch, a bunch more of this. You're, we're not going to solve diversity overnight. We're not going to solve it anytime soon. I don't think, but we got to keep trying. We got to keep improving it. Um, and we do that, you know, by by trying a whole bunch of different things and asking people um, who are in these positions what they need. I love it. I, there's so, so many layers to that. And I appreciate so much that uh, there's an acknowledgement that X company is doing wonderfully well at it. They still should do more. They still can do more. How should we approach it? I really appreciate that, that mentality. And I hope that more people continue to adopt it. Now, you did mention that a lot of times those talks will take place at a GDC. And of course, with the COVID alterations to scheduling and to travel, that those talks no, did not happen in the traditional sense, nor will future talks for the foreseeable months. What changes have you yourself been forced to make given so many closures, not just travel restrictions, and what steps should developers and publishers be taking to support their staffs and, quite seriously, their products from a coverage perspective? All right. A lot of questions there. Um, my Personally, my it's actually sort of weird. I My life has not been very heavily impacted yet. I mean, I think, I think losing the San Francisco trip was honestly the biggest change that I've experienced. You know, I spent like, like the San Francisco trip getting canceled was a bummer. And I, I watched a whole bunch of GDC talks that were done remotely. Um, and they were all wonderful. And I rescheduled a bunch of interviews remotely, but honestly, like that, it was a little bit busy in that regard, but I, I mostly am doing what I already do, which is work from home. And I, I live in Kansas city, Missouri, which hasn't really been super heavily impacted yet, but our mayor is being really proactive and uh, he's been, you know, introducing like, you know, various, various rules, you know, no gatherings of 10 or more people, things like that to sort of shut things down. So I, I've been a little more of a shut in lately, but honestly, I, again, I'm like extremely fortunate. I have not personally been, been super heavily impacted. Now in the long term, I probably will be because, you know, they're going to keep canceling, like, E3's been canceled, a whole bunch of other stuff has been canceled. And uh, the games industry itself, I think is going, I mean, the whole world, the world is going to look extremely different mm-hmm. uh, when we come out of this, whether that's, you know, I, I, I do not think, I, I don't know anything about diseases, but I do not think that this just lasts a few more weeks and then we all go back to our normal lives. Like, I think, I think this is going to heavily impact a lot of things in the long term. And the games industry is just one of those things, probably the least, imp- one of the least important of those things, um, just in terms of like human beings and human cost. But like, you know, it does look different. And that means my job looks different. Um, and that also means that, you know, like, developers and publishers and studios, you know, their lives look very different. I think the games industry is very fortunate in that a lot of the work that it does, not all of it, but a lot of the work that it does can be done from home. Um, you, you can make games in your house. Um, I, I have seen a lot of good coming from the industry. Like it seems like a lot of, especially the bigger companies too, where work from home isn't necessarily a given, um, have been taking steps to tell their, like order their staff to work from home for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's good. That's the correct decision. Um, I, I hope that as many companies, like I hope all companies are, if there's a situation where, staff is not able to come to work at all because of this situation. I hope they are still paying their staff. Mm -hmm. Um, I recognize that 
I, I both recognize that that's not feasible um, for some companies, but I also I, I feel like in an ideal world it would be feasible. Like like you have you have kind of that backlog of money, you should be able to pay your staff. Um, this is not something that's in their control. Um, but yeah, like I, I I want I want companies to take care of their staff. You know, make sure they have the things that they need. Make sure that they are secure. And we're all scared right now. Like we're all scared of a lot of things. We're scared about you know different things in the world happening as a result of this. We're scared about losing our jobs. We're scared about not getting money. Um, that we need to pay our rents. We're scared about getting evicted into a disease-ridden world. I mean, we're scared about a lot of things, but I hope I hope that companies, you know, are doing what they can to minimize the amount of fear that their employees feel right now. Because again, they are people in power. They should be taking care of the people who are not in power. Um, so yeah, um, but then like in terms of in terms of products, in terms of games, right? Like this is going to be a really interesting year, um, I think, for the industry because there is Nintendo's been proving for years that like the digital model of announcing things it works great, right? Like Nintendo Directs, freaking love those; they're amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is so different when it is all digital, right? Like we still have these physical events happening, uh, but, you know, that not everybody goes to, but you go, but people do go to them and they make deals there for games. You know, they, they get their games signed or they, they meet people for the first time and make these like connections, you know, in person or, you know, people go and they, they show like physical products and they network and they do all these things. And it is going to be really interesting to see how games adapt to just not having that for like, six months, maybe more. And I, I know that, you know, diseases are not uh, aware of console cycles, but this is a weird year for this to happen. Um, not being able to have, I I mean, I don't know, like I, I've seen, I, I know nothing, I have no insider knowledge, but I've seen, you know, a lot of speculation online that like Sony specifically was planning some kind of event and inviting, going to invite people to like media influencer people to it to show off the PS5 they are obviously not going to be able to do that, right? Like, mm-hmm. they can't. They just can't. So and what strategy what, was to was to go to, like, hundreds of consumer events or yeah. something, something akin to that wording? Yeah, I remember that. That was, like, the line they said when they said they were pulling out E3, right? Yeah. Like, they mm-hmm. can't do that anymore. So so your strategy just immediately changes. I think – I don't think digital is ineffective. I mean, I think digital has to be effective now because we're all stuck at home looking at our computers. That's all we're doing. Mm-hmm. I – I even think that it has the potential to gather a bigger audience than usual, right? Because again, everybody's at home on their computers. We're not we're not waiting for some physical event to go see it. Like the thing that we have to do is watch the you know watch <laughs> watch Mr. Cerny uh, list off all of the PS5 specs, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing that we have to do right now. Um, and so I, I think it's going to be it, it's interesting. It's untested waters. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we don't even know. Like, like, are the consoles going to get delayed? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's weird, weird, uncharted territory. Um, but I think, I think the games industry is, the games industry both has unique problems, but it also has unique advantages in this kind of situation because so much of it is already digital. Um, I think we're going to see physical retail. I mean, the, I've mentioned GameStop multiple times, but like Game in the UK and EB Games 2 are suffering. And I, I, I think we're going to see physical retail just sort of, you know, it's not going to be a good year for that. It mm-hmm. might be a death knell for physical retail. I don't think we'll see physical games go away because we have that, like Amazon and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's going to be a weird year. Weird year. In general, it it is, again, as you said, a strange year and strange timing to watch how these, you know, billion and trillion dollar companies will roll out a physical product whilst doing digital presentations, and I think that'll be something to watch. Uh, Rebecca Valentine, I have so greatly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for, for jumping on and joining me today. Oh, thank you so much. This has been a delight. 
Well, I think we've said it many a time, but once again, I would love for you to uh, let us know where we can find your work, and then, of course, if you're willing to share uh, your social media space. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find um, my writings. I'm, I'm on vacation this week, so no writing from me this week. Um, but after that, um, I'm at gamesindustry.biz. Um, I mean, you should read them anyway. They've got all, everybody there is amazing. Um, and then uh, I'm on Twitter at Duck Valentine. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's basically everywhere I am. <laughs> well, there we go. Thank you again for your time, Rebecca. And I look forward to talking to you again soon.